Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic, a storytelling podcast featuring the amazing people of the Magic the Gathering community. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Join me and my guests as we share stories about what MTG means to us, how we got started playing Magic, the ups, the downs, the hilarious stories, and everything in between. In this episode, I'm talking to Cedric Phillips, media manager for StarCityGames.com, commentator and host. Cedric is a longtime pro, commentator, and writer of strategic magic content at StarCityGames.com. Cedric is a showman. His passion and dedication for sports entertainment shows up in his professional delivery of his magic commentary. He tells us how he started playing magic and what he hopes to see in the future of magic broadcasting. He also talks about his friendship with Jerry Thompson and Patrick Sullivan. I had a great time hanging out back in the fall of 2016. Here is my interview with Cedric Phillips. Hi everyone, I'm Sam Tang, the host of Kitchen Table Magic. Today, I am joined by Cedric Phillips. Cedric, how are you? I'm doing well, Sam. How are you? Thank you so much for being here today. Where are you joining me from? Uh, I am here in my apartment in Roanoke, Virginia. Uh, it is uh, kind of late on a Thursday evening here in Roanoke, first day of September. Yeah, yeah. Awesome, awesome. And I am here in Seattle. Uh, it's starting to cool down. It's uh, starting to turn into fall. And right now, PAX is, is just about to explode. So, the entire city is just kind of buzzing with excitement right now. I miss PAX. PAX is pretty wonderful. If you can get in somehow, I mean, I have no idea how people get tickets, but if you can get in somehow, it's it's a pretty crazy party. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good time. I haven't been to PAX for a couple of years, but uh, the times that I did go when I was living in Seattle, I found it to be a lot of fun. You wrote in an article a while ago that you were just like, I don't really play games, but I was there and there was just so much cool stuff around you. Yeah, I mean, there was a point in my life uh, during my teenage years and before that when I was growing up, uh, when I was a much bigger like video gamer um, and, and like kind of enshrined in the fighting game community and stuff like that for what little of it there was back in uh, like the early 2000s. But now I'm just kind of all magic and all daily fantasy sports all the time. No more video games, at least for right now. Yeah, very cool. Well, Cedric, we brought you here. We want to know about your life and talk to you about kind of who you are. Could you start at the beginning and just tell us where you grew up and how you got started playing Magic? Uh, born and raised in Strongsville, Ohio uh, for the first 18 years of my life. That's a suburb of Cleveland, about 20-25 minutes outside of the city, uh, 25 minutes south. Um, I started playing Magic. I don't even know the age now, honestly. I, uh, I've told this story before, but my best friend at the time, John Cross, who lived, uh, let's say, seven houses down from me, um, we were really good friends because we both played video games a lot, and he had shown me a copy of Polar Kraken on a bus, uh, I think on the way home from school, either to or from elementary school, uh, and he said, I'm playing this game called Magic, uh, it's a lot of fun, you should learn how to play, he showed me how to play, and then... Our other really good friend, his name was Mike Henshaw, he also played, and so we just used to play a lot of, like, I guess you could call it Commander now, even though we didn't have Commanders, but uh, multiplayer games in John's basement, where there was no attacking for an hour, (laughs) Um, you just had to build up your resources and build a board and everything, and then you actually got to do stuff after the hour was done, (laughs) Um, and that kind of got me into the game, but I was a lot more competitive than both of uh, those guys were. Even though they were pretty competitive, they were more competitive in like video games and playing stuff like StarCraft 2 online and all of that stuff. Uh, I got really competitive in with Magic, so uh, I found out there were local tournaments up the street from where I lived. Uh, I started t- attending those in the regular while they did not. Uh, then I started finding. I found another store uh, that was local that's that had uh, win a box tournaments every weekend. Cool. Uh, then I found a store that was like thirty minutes from me uh, that had like F and M and PTQs back when they were under the old PTQ system and Grand Prix trials and a bunch of guys who would travel uh, to tournaments. Uh, some of those people include Tim Ayton, for those of you who know that name. Um, and then uh, it kind of just went from there. Honestly, started going to Grand Prix and PTQs, and now here I am. That's so cool. You really did a lot of PTQs, and you even won a bunch of PTQs. Uh, yeah, I now have won 12 PTQs over the, my time of playing professional Magic. Man, my first one I actually won in St. Louis when I was, uh, yeah, 19. Won at 19, my first year of college. Cool. Do you remember which Pro Tour that was for? Uh, it was for Pro Tour London. Wow. 
Yeah, that was that was the first one. I actually beat a friend of mine. His name was Sean Magner in the finals. Um, we both wanted to go, uh, so we had to have kind of the conversation about you know, do we want to split? Do we want to? Is one of us going to go? If one of, is one of us not going to go? If they win, all that stuff, and we both were like, okay, if we both want to go. I guess we have to play it out. We ended up playing it out, and I ended up beating him. Uh, I think two games to one with mm-hmm. a blue red deck. So you get to London, and what was it like in London for the first time? Um, it was difference i guess you could say uh-huh. um i had a real struggle with, with my parents allowing me to go to that particular pro tour um in that situation like they didn't want me to go by myself i was only 19 uh so i had to actually convince them for about three months to actually let me go uh-huh before they finally gave in um and i had like tim ayton was there with me and john pelkat gadiel cypher uh, those are the people who I was basically with, and Tim was kind of playing chaperone since he. Tim's like four or five years older than me, so and he's uh-huh. been overseas a bunch and was playing on the pro tour. Um, and then the first day we were there, you know, I didn't prepare for the trip at all, so I didn't know where I was going to stay. Um, this was before like you know cell phones were really that big of a deal, so I didn't really have one of those. Uh-huh. Certainly didn't have one that could you know call across back over to the states or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, and so I realized that the first day I was there, I never called my parents. Also, the first day that I was there was when the London was when the London bombings happened. Oh no. Uh, yeah, so I didn't really put two and two together that I hadn't called my parents at all. So when I did call them, it was like four in the morning, uh, US time, and my mom and dad yelled at me for a really long time. Oh, no. Yeah, for being an irresponsible child who they thought was almost certainly dead. So, uh, not great. Oh, no. Yeah, not a great first pro tour. But on a side note, you've got great parents. Uh, I do have really, really, really awesome parents. I'm pretty <laughs> lucky in that regard. Um, They've enabled me to do a lot of things magic related that not, not all parents would allow their kids to do. So, in that regard, I'm pretty fortunate. That's really awesome. So, Watsy picked up your plane ticket. You got to London. You were like, I don't really have a place to stay. <laughs> oh, that was before Watsy even picked up plane tickets. You just got a five hundred. Oh, really? Yeah, you got a five hundred dollar travel reward. Uh, if memory serves, I think at that time it was five hundred for an overseas Grand Prix. So, uh huh. The flight was a lot more than that, so they were able to pick up a little bit before of it. But they kind of they they obviously have changed things where they pick up your entire plane ticket now. I still can't believe I actually convinced my parents to let me go, and I still can't believe they did let me go unsupervised at nineteen with like no money, no plan, just wanted to play in the pro tour or you know hang out with my friends in a different country. But uh, like I said, they're they're pretty they're pretty nice to me for whatever reason. That's wild. It's like play magic, see the world. You really got to do that. Yes, yes, I did. And what was the pro tour like? You got there and then there was, you know, draft, constructed. Uh, it was an all draft pro tour. Um, yeah, it was It was kind of fun. You know, nothing to really write home about. It was Kamigawa blocks. So, uh, ho- hopefully you open them as I was GTA, but uh, it was a pro tour that didn't go particularly well for me. So, uh, it's while it's it wasn't my first pro tour, my first pro tour was actually pro tour San Diego in 2004 because I top eight at a Grand Prix in earlier in 2004. Uh-huh. So, you know, if I had to think of a pro tour, uh, San Diego is the more memorable of the two as far as early pro tours are concerned. London, outside of, you know, the whole London bombing thing, nothing to really write home about. Wow. So, your first pro tour, how old were you when you went to the first pro tour? 18. Wow. <laughs> I mean, you like got on the pro tour really early. Yeah, I guess, you know, uh, earlier than I guess most people do. I know there are some people who start playing the Pro Tours 15, 16, stuff like that. Um, I got on pretty early, I guess you could say, uh, at age 18. Top hitting a Grand Prix, Grand Prix Columbus in 2004, uh, which was Mirrodin Block Limited, Mirrodin Mirrodin Darksteel sealed deck. Uh, and that was the same format for the PT because Fifth Dawn was not yet. So, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was just MMD again. Uh, didn't do well in my first Pro Tour, unfortunately, because uh, those things are pretty tough. But uh, yeah, the, the Pro Tour was just, it was a blast. I mean, I absolutely loved it. Did you notice like a completely different caliber of player that were there? You know, you are qualifying for PTQs and playing in FNMs. And those are kind of like your local regional guys and just kind of like the better guys and, and gals in the local area. And then suddenly you get to the Pro Tour. Do you just see a different caliber of player? Oh, uh, yeah, especially at that time. I mean, uh, back when I was 18, you know, didn't really have a ton of access to the internet and all that stuff. You know, I'm, I, when I was on the internet, I was reading about magic and reading about some of the people who were the bigger names in the game. So, uh, as it turns out, my first Pro Tour table, um, I wonder if I can actually find this. I've written an article about this at some point. I've talked about it before. But uh, my first Pro Tour table, there was Brian Kibler, John Finkel, uh, Gabe Walls, Dirk Pabrowski, Jerry Thompson, Katsuhiro Mori, um, I think Kai, but I can't remember for sure. 
uh, and then me and uh, some someone from Brazil. Uh, that was that was it. So yeah, my first draft table was absolutely stacked. <laughs> uh, I was way, 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 uh, way overmatched in my first pro tour <laughs> draft table. I'm going to see if I can find the exact names for this. That for would be too Canada. good. <laughs> 2004 live coverage first draft, but I remember I, I remember this draft pod because it was I was in the last draft pod. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Whatever, like the highest number was, I was the very last one. So I was like, oh okay, this is kind of awesome. Like I'm going to be at the last draft pod. So. You know, if I don't know why I would think that that would matter, you know, like just being at the last one, like somehow it would give me, they, w- they wouldn't put really good people at the last one, which is not a thing, uh-huh. obviously. But that was, I was underneath that impression at age, uh, <laughs> at age 18. <laughs> so, okay. It's uh, Jerry T, Dirk Borowski, Brian Kibler, Gabe Walls, Berlulio Rivera, Masahiko Morita, John Finkel, and myself. So that's, the Jerry T will probably be a Hall of Famer one day. Kibler is a Hall of Famer. Marita is a Hall of Famer. Finkel's a Hall of Famer. So, four Hall of Famers. Yikes. And then Derp Robrowski, who, uh, if he continued to play, would, would certainly be a Hall of Famer because he was an elite uh, He was an elite pro, member of Team Phoenix Foundation. And uh, Gabe Walls, who is a different story altogether. Not even going to get into that. But uh, he was really good at Magic back in the day, too. So, uh, yeah. Pretty tough draft table. Wow. That was amazing. Do you remember how the draft went? Oh, I owe three. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. I, def- I owe three for sure. Um I drafted a pretty good base white deck. I think I was splashing green. Uh-huh. Uh, at that time, uh, white was a really good color in that particular draft format, especially in Dark Steel, where you got cards like Razor Gullum, Stir the Pride, um, Pristine Angel, which was rare, a uh, bunch of other stuff too, honestly. White was a really good color in that format. And I was actually passing to Jerry T in the third pack. Um, and I, th- I just remember like I was taking like Lean in Battle Mage, which is a four mana 2-3. You could tap to give a creature plus one plus one, and then I think if you like played a spell, you got to untap it. Uh, it was like a busted uncommon in white. I was like taking that card and passing him Razor Gullums. Like took a Pristine Angel, passed him a Stir of the Pride. Like you know, so I lose like the first round, lose the second round. I can't remember who I played the second round. Then third round, I'm paired against Jerry. We're both on two, and him and I actually know each other at that point. And you know, like he plays a planes, I play a planes, and he's just like, "How are you in white?" And I'm like, "How are you in white?" <laughs> <laughs> and then we both start playing our cards, and we're like, "Right." okay, both our decks are really good and we're both 0-2. This sucks. Um, but he ended up making, uh, I think he top 32 that Pro Tour uh, while I uh, I did not. So, Oh, that is so fascinating. Gosh, it's so interesting that these, uh, these memories stick with us even after so many years. They're just like yesterday. Oh, for sure. Uh, Jerry and I, uh, we know we kind of travel to the same tournaments. We li- actually live in the same city, all that stuff. Uh, we, we talk about, you know, this Pro Tour. It probably comes up like once a, once a year at least just of, you know, our decks in that situation. You know, that's part of where we started to become pretty good friends, all that stuff. So it's always a a pretty entertaining story. And you wrote an article, you know, about four years ago, it was called Reigniting the Fire. And this was just kind of like after you had come back into magic. But there was a time when you were like, I'm kind of playing and grinding and just kind of missing some things. And you just decided I'm not going to play magic for a little bit. What was going through your head at that time? Uh, well, that was like a little while after I moved to Seattle. Um, I moved to Seattle post uh, post college uh, to get a job and just kind of, you know, be a twenty three year old adult and you know, kind of get things underway uh, as far as life is concerned. Life after college, I suppose, and what society tells you you're supposed to do. So, you know, I I tried to use my degree to get a job. wasn't really particularly successful. All that stuff um, ended up like getting a job serving at a Red Robin, then getting a getting a uh, job with an advertising firm in Seattle, uh, working there for a while, being successful at it but hating it, uh, and eventually just kind of went back to finding the thing that I actually enjoyed doing, which was playing Magic in some capacity, as I hadn't really played for about six or seven months, and um, it was just one of the few things that actually made me happy. So I decided I wanted to go back to doing it and do it to the best of my ability, and that's what I was, uh, I guess we could say, able to do. Yeah. I remember one of the last PTQs, because they were switching over to the new system, it was in Seattle Center. And it was like, I can't remember, it was like 400 people or something like that. I had not played in in high-level events like that ever in my life. So, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is massive. And I remember just kind of somehow wandering over to the top tables. And I see you. And I'm like, that's Cedric. Like, I know Cedric. He's here in the flesh. And it was standard. I, I can't remember what standard format it was. You were just crushing. And I remember back then as kind of like a scrubby noob, I was like, he plays so quickly. Like, he's so fast. Like, he's tapping his 
permanent so quickly and he's drawing so quickly and he's and that was just that was just like the thought in my head that you had like an incredibly stern face because normally you got a big smile on your face <laughs> but here you were so stern and you were playing so like with conviction and so definitively and you were just like crushing and you were just like at, at the top tables uh, yeah um when i play um i mean i'm a pretty jovial guy uh, i like to have a good time all that yeah. stuff uh, especially when i'm in the booth when i'm trying to provide entertainment for people but like when i'm actually playing and pretty well tested and I uh, have pretty high expectations for myself in the tournament that I'm playing, and I'm pretty serious the entire time. Mm-hmm. I'm not really... I, I don't want to say I'm not having fun, because I am having fun because I'm playing Magic, but uh, I'm there with just one thing in mind, which is to win the tournament. Nothing else is really acceptable for that particular day. So, um, a lot of people do comment on that, that like when I'm playing in a tournament, I'm not like the fun person they might see on uh, you know SCG Live or something like that, but... Uh, if I'm playing in a tournament and I've tested a lot for said tournament, uh, my only focus is on doing as well as possible. And the only thing that I really accept for myself when I'm uh, well tested for a tournament is first place. So uh, that's probably one of those times that you actually saw me in. <laughs> I said to myself, it's like, gosh, Sam, you got to buck up. If you actually want to get to that caliber, you're going to run into guys like Cedric or run into Cedric and he's going to just try to roll over you. I was like, oh my gosh, I need to, <laughs> I need to get my game face on. Well, I mean, certainly there to win. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's for sure. I don't, you know, with Magic, especially when I'm playing competitively and I, I care about the results I'm trying, trying to accomplish and everything, like, uh, it's, it's 100% serious all the time. Uh, that, that does have the, the ability to rub some people the wrong way. And I totally understand that. But, you know, that's just how I kind of look at things. I know that, you know, a player like Owen Turtenwald has recently said, you know, outside of first place at Worlds uh, this weekend, nothing else is acceptable. And if I was in his situation, I would probably say a very similar thing. Um, that's just kind of how I set the bar for myself and what I'm trying to accomplish. Absolutely. You know, after that article, Reigniting the Fire, you got back into it and the articles kept coming, the content kept coming. And just what were you doing at that time in your life? I mostly just playing magic streaming, stuff like that, trying to figure out what I kind of wanted to do. I think I was like 26 at that time. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, just a lot of a lot of streaming on Twitch, um, a lot of kind of traveling to tournaments, testing online. Um, on Magic Online, like all that stuff, really. So I had a like kind of once I started streaming, kind of as my day job. Um, I like won a PTQ in Seattle. Uh, went th- that qualified me for Pro Tour Return to Ravnica in Seattle. I think I went eight eight there, and then I I top eighted GP Boston Worcester a little bit before that because I double queued for Seattle, and then went to GP Philly after Pro Tour Seattle and got sixteenth place on Breakers. Uh, so I was off to a really good start for the season, but the thing about like streaming and, uh, kind of doing what I was doing, like writing articles and then just streaming full time is that it just didn't pay particularly well. So I had to find something else to do. Uh, and that's kind of where working myself into coverage and writing more articles and just doing more stuff for Star City kind of, kind of came into play. So you said that you transitioned into coverage. When did you join the SEG coverage team? Uh, if memory serves, my first show was origins 2012 in columbus ohio maybe honestly 2013 2014 origins 2013 Mm -hmm. was my first show because i've been doing this for four years now so 2013 2014 yeah so origins 2013 with joey pasco uh in columbus and open there was my first show with scg live can you tell a little bit more about your role in scg what is your official title or what do you do with the team Oh, sure. So, uh, my official title with SCG now uh, is the media manager, which encompasses a lot of things. It's hard to just put a title and, and you know, you understand exactly what that means. But um, a lot of what I do has to deal with uh, website layout, the kind of content that we publish, uh, the authors and con- content producers that we hire and we brand, um, you know, just like a lot of ideas for the type of content that we do uh, and the message that we're trying to get across. Uh, in addition to that, you know, any advertising uh, and public and promotion of things that we're doing kind of falls underneath my scope. Uh, and then anything that's kind of SCG tour related also falls underneath my scope. So the direction of the broadcast, uh, what we're doing with the tournaments, uh, you know, kind of the point systems that we have in place for the SCG tour leaderboard and, you know, players and their benefits for doing well in the SCG tours, uh, what the players championship looks like, all of that stuff. Uh, kind of falls underneath my umbrella as well. So um, there's a I wear a lot of hats for the company. Yes, you do. And, and when I'm not doing that, obviously I'm also doing uh, 
I'm also doing coverage as well for some number of weekends over the course of the year. So, uh, there's a lot going on. Wow. Yeah, there is a lot that you're doing. You and Patrick Sullivan are a fantastic duo, I just have to say. Thank you very much. I do appreciate that. (laughs) I watch a lot of your coverage. And whenever you and Patrick Sullivan are on there, it doesn't even matter what format you guys are talking about. You guys are on point. Cedric, what contributes to the chemistry? Uh, The chemistry is based mostly off of two things, honestly. One is uh, we have a really good friendship, uh, which I don't even really know uh, to this day really how Patrick and I became such good friends. Um, I can't like, you know, trace it back to a particular moment like I could with something like my magic career. I can't even tell you the first show that Patrick and I ever did together. Uh, I think it may have been a Grand Prix where there were three people and Patrick and I were two of them. Like there, there's no, there's no, you know, like landmark or anything like that that I can point to that says like, oh yeah, for sure. You know, we did a show together and we were just like, okay, we're going to be awesome together. That, that doesn't ever jog, at least in my mind. I don't know if it jogs through his. But the chemistry that we have is built over the friendship um, that we have kind of developed over the past four years, um, in which not only do I not remember the first show I did with him, I don't even really remember where we became friends at either. Uh, when you play in all of these magic tournaments over the course of a decade, you obviously just kind of meet and run into people. And uh, Patrick and I kind of did that, and his personality gets along with mine, and we have a lot of similar interests, uh, but we're also pretty different people, and I suppose opposites attract, as they say, so... Um, that's kind of what happened with us. Um, the other thing too is just a pretty relentless work ethic uh, for both of us. Uh, we both like to be the very best of the things that we do, um, be it coverage, be it playing the game of magic, be it on his end, game design, be it on my end, the media manager of Star City, or you know having a long-term vision for what I want to do with the SCG Tour and magic and all that stuff. So when we are in the booth, um, you know we're pretty critical of ourselves and each other. Uh, and there's nothing malicious about that. It's just that we want to put the best product forward uh, for the people who are watching what we do. So it's important to us that we're able to do that and we take our work very seriously. So uh, as a result, we have a good time doing it, but we also uh, we also treat it for what we believe it to be, which is a pretty important product that we're putting forward to people to watch. Patrick is known on Twitter as Basic Mountain, and he's a very well-known red mage. What would be your magic spell slinging call to fame? Um, well, I think I'm known for two archetypes over the course of my magic career. Um, one is Kithkin because I made the, the top eight of Pro Tour Kyoto uh, with that deck. And I was really just known for playing that deck for a couple of months leading into that tournament. I played it all throughout that block season, uh, lower one block. And then I was playing it in most of the standard season as well to a lot of success. A, a lot of PTQ top eights, uh, but no PTQ victories. Uh, a at least one Grand Prix top 64, maybe I, made, I think two actually, uh, and then a Pro Tour top eight as well. So uh, I had a lot of deep runs with Kitkin up to and including the Pro Tour top eight in Kyoto. So I think that's the one that people thought of me the most about, especially when I was playing competitively back in 2009-2010. Nowadays, people think of me as the goblin guy uh, because of my SEG token. Uh Uh-huh. Which I find to be kind of ironic, only because uh, like I do like goblins in Legacy a little bit, but I started playing Legacy in 2005, and I would just play whatever Legacy deck Jerry Thompson either built or told me to play, and it was never goblins. I was actually always trying to beat goblins because it was the best deck in Legacy back then, and typically failed at doing that. So I actually kind of hated goblins, not only then, but also my senior year of high school when goblin bidding was a deck in Onslaught Standard. Uh, I would never play goblins then either, and would lose to it consistently as well. So uh, even though I'm kind of known as the goblin guy for a very long time in my life, I actually hated goblins and refused to play it. And now everyone identifies me as a goblin token and someone who loves goblins, which don't get me wrong, I've certainly come around to the little green fellas. But uh, <laughs> if I had to be honest, I hated goblins for like eight years. So. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's such strange irony. A lot of people don't actually know that, but yeah, that's the truth. <laughs> okay, well, you heard it here. Uh, Candid, uh, Cedric is like, nope, I don't like goblins. Nothing against them, really. I just don't like them. Yeah. That is so interesting. Cedric, in uh, September of 2012, you s- wrote an article about how you went to PAX Prime and you went to a North American regionals game between CLG and Legion. And you sat in the audience and you saw the fanfare and you saw everything go down. 
And you kind of walked away kind of thinking about esports, gaming, entertainment, broadcasting. You kind of just walked away with a kind of a different perspective on it all. And you wrote an article about how to improve coverage. Talk to us about that a little bit. Uh, yeah. So at PAX about four years ago now, uh, I ended up going to PAX, uh, I guess like, I think they call it PAX West now. I think it was called PAX Prime back in the day. Mm-hmm. But PAX West now in Seattle, when I was living there, um, someone was able to get me a badge and I had nothing to do. So I ended up going. Uh, my friend Joe uh, just kind of showed me around and I had never, I'd been to conventions before, Origins, Gen Con, um, Dragon Con in Atlanta, but I'd never been to a PAX before. So um, Joe was kind of showing me around and, you know, it's in, it's in the Seattle Convention Center in downtown Seattle. So it was really, really packed and busy. And, you know, I'm used to conventions, but nothing really of this size and magnitude in regards to how many people were actually there. So, uh, kind of taking that all in was pretty crazy. And so I'm walking around kind of taking a look at the sights and the sounds and it's a lot more video game based and all that stuff, which is really, really cool. Even though that's not something that, uh, I'm as into now as I was much earlier in my life. And then Joe told me that there was going to be like a League of Legends match going on. I was like, okay, like, you know, I played Dota when I was in college and haven't really played League of Legends, but, you know, I'm more than happy to watch because I'll have a pretty decent idea at least of what's going on. So found a seat with Joe in the Coliseum or wherever it was being held in the, at PAX. And uh, a lot of people filed in and then all of a sudden, you know, it's, it's got a lot of production value to it. You know, there's, uh, there's people hyping up the crowd. There's a lot of cosplay that's been done. Um, you know, you've got the competitors on the stage with their computers and their monitors and their customized chairs and all this stuff. And you've got an announce team and everything. So you see them kind of treating it as a big deal, or at least wanting to put out there to people who are watching that it is a big deal and perception is everything in life. And so me, uh, never seen this before, I'm perceiving this to be a big deal. So as a result, it is a big deal. And as I watch everything kind of unfold and the crowd is really, really, really into it, um, I'm just thinking to myself, wow, this is really awesome. And uh, I understand that Magic is obviously a different game than what this is. But, you know, this particular game in League of Legends at the time, I don't, maybe three years old. I don't remember the exact time that League of Legends has come out through Riot. But, you know, they've obviously put a real focus on making this uh, washer friendly. I don't know, just something kind of struck me at that time that was just like, you know, magic is just kind of floundering along with, you know, mediocre coverage and not really a bigger picture at hand. And it doesn't make sense that a game that's been around for as long as magic has doesn't have this level of coverage while League of Legends is absolutely killing it right now um, for various reasons. So uh, that really kind of stuck with me as I left. Uh, that particular tournament and leaving PAX that evening is just, I don't understand why things are the way that they are. And (laughs) all things being honest, you know, that question really still hasn't been answered at this point. You see the massive growth of League of Legends and Dota 2 with the International and Hearthstone, uh, Overwatch and all this stuff. And, you know, those games are obscenely popular and they're watched by a lot of people. And you've got CSGO on on television we just had evo on espn2 and these games that are actively seeking growth and have a really large base of consumers and people are interested in watching and then uh you've got kind of magic that is unfortunately being kind of left behind so um it kind of sucks to watch happen but it's kind of the reality of the situation you had some really good analysis in your article about um you know uh, other kinds of esports like league which is more action packed and a little bit more fast paced can be thought of as football and magic can be thought of as baseball um and you put a lot of analysis into you know where people's attention spans are and things like that and then you're also talking about where the narrative of the game is going you know what are the stories of the players you've got this great line in your article you say We don't know anything about the best players in the game. And if you don't know anything about the best players in the game, why do you care if they win or lose? And you're really putting a call to action out there to really think about all we are are the community. We are people. And so we have to tell the backstories and the origin stories of the people. And if we start to care about the people, which is really all anything in life really is, then you're going to care more about the game and also care more about what's going on. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with that. I think that People connect through people. So, you know, if you just look at, if you look at sports, uh, professional sports, which I'm some, which is something I'm very much into, uh, and professional wrestling, which is something I'm also very much into and very passionate about, 
Uh, you've got a pretty good idea of who those people are. One of the things actually that's happened with professional wrestling over the past handful of years is that they've actually let the wrestlers, instead of just being their personas, uh, for the most part, uh, they are letting them kind of open up and kind of reveal who they are and what they're into and what mm-hmm. they do. Uh, a really good example of that is a wrestler by the name of Xavier Woods, who has a YouTube channel that is called Up, Up, Down, Down, uh, because he's a big time video gamer. Ah. So uh, not only is he a professional wrestler who's very entertaining on the microphone uh, and pretty good in the ring and has this gimmick and all this stuff, but also on the side, they're just like, okay, you know, you do other things. You are not just Xavier Woods. You're also Austin Creed, who does wrestling. Uh, excuse me, who does video games and, you know, you love video games, you're passionate about them and whenever they're on the road for shows, uh, he's always tweeting about, hey, I'm going to be at this barcade if you guys want to hang out and play video games and all this other stuff and it lets you actually connect to that person, that character more and say, oh, you know, I kind of like your wrestling work or either I, I like your wrestling work or I love your wrestling work, but I also like these other things that you do. Mm-hmm. And that's actually something that I do as well. Uh, a lot of people know that like I'm a really big fan of professional wrestling. I'm a really big fan of basketball, specifically the Cleveland Cavaliers. That's right. Uh, a lot of people really like the really know the music that I listen to and I share my Spotify playlists. A lot of people know that I go to the gym a lot and lift a lot because I'm trying to get in really good shape. Like I actually just share the person that I am. And then if people like that, that's totally cool. And if people don't like that, that's also cool. I have no problem with that. But I actually share the person that I am to people because, you know, it allows people to, at least in some capacity, kind of grow an emotional attachment to me. And then, you know, if they care more about me or if they don't, uh, that's, that's totally their call. But just being someone who just, I'm a magic player, is really boring to me. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, it doesn't really tell you anything. There's no way to kind of draw up an emotional attachment to that person. And myself personally, I, I, I've always strongly felt that people connect to people. So while I do think that, you know, like ma- people like magic because, you know, it's a great game and, you know, they're cool characters and there's been a real emphasis over the past five or six years about developing the characters in magic. That's why you see Jace everywhere and Chandra, Gideon, you know, there's a real onus on developing the planeswalkers. Uh, and the environments that we're going to, as opposed to just playing the cards, people also just, I think, connect to people. So there there should be a lot more emphasis on who is Luis Scott Vargas, who is John Finkel, who is uh, Paulo Vitor Dama de Rosa, who are all the world's competitors outside of really good magic players? Because once you actually come to the conclusion that, okay, they're all really good at magic, you know, what sets them apart? Who are you rooting for and why? And it can't be, oh, well, Owen Turtonwald's really good at magic. It's like, okay, well, what do we know about Owen Turtonwald besides the fact that he's really good at magic? And I think that's actually what helps you grow the game in some circumstances. Um, you see this a lot, as I mentioned, in professional wrestling, professional sports, but you also see it in a lot in esports now, too, where you're able to find out who the most popular and successful esports players are, why they are that way, but also the other things that they like to do outside of what is basically their day job, which is, you know, playing League of Legends and stuff like that. And I think that's actually really important. You talked a lot about uh, in that that previous 2012 article about ways we should improve coverage. Cedric, how do you feel those call to actions have have shown up in you know fast forwarding f- four years? And now we're here, kind of in the future in 2016, and we're looking back. Do you think coverage has improved in in the way you'd like it to improve? Uh, I think that things have gotten better. I think that kind of overall, you know, everyone's kind of taking coverage more serious because uh, coverage for the game uh, helps to grow the game. So I think that that's actually really, really important. I, I mean, is it where I want it to be? No, I think that things could be a lot bigger and a lot better. Uh, you know, you're seeing other games, like I mentioned, like League of Legends and Dota 2, uh, the international being the specific tournament that are, you know, selling out stadiums like Madison Square Garden or um, Key Arena in Seattle, stuff like that. Like, you know, they are selling tickets and filling them up and, you know, people aren't able to get in. I mean, if you look at PAX... Uh, in Seattle this weekend, like getting a ticket is basically impossible unless you want to pay a, a boatload of money mm-hmm. uh, to be able to get in now at this point and PAX tickets sell out really, really fast. And part of the reason for that is those are great conventions, but also there are uh, tournaments we're seeing at, at, at those at those conventions. So do I think that Magic Covers have gotten better? Yeah, I mean, it's basically impossible for it not to over the course of four years. Um, but do I think it is where it could be? No, not at all. I think that things could be done a lot better in a much larger capacity, but it's about if people actually see the benefits of doing things that way and if they want to do the things that way. Um, I mean, you can make every excuse in the world you want to for why, you know, magic is not as interesting as uh, League of Legends or Dota 2 or ABC XYZ. Like, we can have those conversations all day. At the end of the day, it's if you either... It's... At the end of the day, for me, it's if you want to make it happen or not. Uh, You can overcome all of those things. It's... Honestly, it's like... It's like in sales, just overcoming objections. You know, you can overcome those things if you want to and if you believe uh, that 
the product you can put forward can be really, really good, then you can do it. I mean, I'm sure that there were people who were working for Riot or people who were working uh, for Dota 2 or anything like that. And, you know, someone came along with the idea of like, you know, our goal should be to sell out stadiums and, you know, put this on TVs and, you know, get the SBN2. And I'm sure many people were just like, you're crazy. And now you look at them and it's like, no, they're not. They were right. Um, because, you know, they had a well-thought idea uh, about what this could be and what it could become. And sure, I'm, I'm sure there were a lot of hiccups along the way and a lot of people they had to convince that this could be a possibility, but um, they're here. Um, they're obviously doing very, very well for themselves in Riot and Dota 2 and Hearthstone and Overwatch and all those other games. And, you know, some other games are just being left behind as a result because I just don't think they're open-minded enough to think about the possibilities there are out there. Um, again, I know there are hiccups with this sort of thing, but um, there's, there's nothing, there's nothing impossible about this. It's just, if you want, if you believe that something can grow that large, at least in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, Cedric, from your experience and just kind of in that position that you're sitting in, what do you think is the it thing that is missing from coverage these days? Uh, I don't know if there's just one thing, honestly. Um, I think right now it's just like getting an audience in place has just been pretty difficult. Um, you know, Patrick and I, or whoever's in the booth for SCG Live, Matthias and Ryan, uh, Chris and Andrew, like we try to make the the coverage as interesting as possible uh, because Magic can be a little bit slow at times. But there are plenty of games that can be really, really slow at times, like a baseball as well, like a golf. Uh, tennis can be slow at times as well. Um, so the fact that things can be slow at times is not a deterrent at all. I mean, those right. are just, again, objections that you just simply have to overcome, which other games and activities have been able to do that. And Magic has been okay at doing that. But at the same time, I just don't think that the messages has been communicated all that well that, you know, Magic coverage is out there and it's something people should be watching. It's something we want people to be watching. Um, and so as a result, the viewership is what it is and it hasn't grown all of that much. Uh, it has grown some, but certainly not to the degree that I would be happy with over the course of four years. So, um, I think the main thing that needs to be done is just kind of building awareness. I would say about this is a thing that's going on and this is why you need to dedicate your time to this. Like if you've got an extra, you know, if you've got a Saturday open or some hours available on a weekend, like you should be watching the world championships this weekend, or you should be watching SAG Richmond this weekend and not doing the other thing that you were considering doing. Yeah, definitely show up and support. You know, what's interesting, uh, Cedric, is I was thinking about um, a while ago, there was an NPR segment when they were talking about the birth of the instant replay. And this was around, um, you know, Super Bowl season. And they were talking about the first time that uh, I think uh, NBC or ABC was using the instant replay feature. It was in a college game. And people were really excited to see, you know, already football being broadcast on a TV. But then when there was an instant replay, lots of people called in to ask, was there another touchdown being scored? And it was kind of like they had like gone out on a limb that you know the engineers were like well we're gonna try this new instant replay and i'm just wondering like what other kind of technological things do you think could improve magic coverage either instant replay or um, augmented reality or like lines x's and o's and arrows being drawn on the screen i know for football because the the field is green you could basically green screen a lot of things on the field and when we see that as we're getting into football season you see lines and decals and timers and you know fourth down or whatever always being drawn on the screen, but we don't really see a lot of those things in Magic, other than just the graphical overlay. Yeah, I mean, I could see things like instant replay being very helpful um, as, a, as a jumping off point. Um, you know, a lot of people have talked about hand cams and being able to see the player's hands and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And I think that there's a positive to that and there's negative to that. And it just depends on what you weigh. Um, so, you know, in some situations, hand cams can be very useful uh, because you just want to know what's in the player's hand. So you would be able to actually put yourself in that situation. Um, as a viewer about what they would do. And you see the Pro Tour kind of implement that with the sidebar of the player's hands. They're right. consistently trying to update that with the spotters. And that's all well and good. Um, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I just think that there's two ways to look at it. There's that approach and there's also a hidden information approach where you actually don't have a great idea what's, what is in either player's hand. So as a result, you're actually kind of playing a game of magic as well in which, you know, you might be able to see, you might be able to know your hand, but you actually don't know what's coming in the hand of, of the opponent, which you wouldn't know if you're actually playing a game. So uh, there was a match that we covered at the Invitational in New Jersey a couple weeks ago where Tom Ross was playing against um, a gentleman whose name escapes me right now, but uh, his deck was really all over the place. Hmm. You could tell Tom was just kind of stabbing around in the dark. He wasn't really sure what to play, what to play around, how to proceed at any stage of the game. And Tom was just playing humans in standard like he normally is mm -hmm. um, and one of the best humans players in the world. And to kind of watch 
his opponent and not actually know the cards in his opponent's hand because Patrick and I couldn't see them very well. And I just, <laughs> I just decided, you know what, screw it. I'm not even going to try to look at his hand anymore. I'm actually just going to kind of commentate this game as if I was in Tom's chair because it's way more fun just not knowing what's in the opponent's hand. Yeah. So there was a turn where it looked like it, his deck was looking like it was a Bant Company deck. So on, uh, you know, turn four... He left up four mana to be able to cast Collective Company, and Tom thought for a little while and just attacked with one creature, and then his opponent played Blessed Alliance and escalated it. Oh, wow. So, it was like, okay, Tom didn't really see that coming. You saw him kind of, you know, sit up in his chair a little bit and just be like, okay, I don't know what the heck's going on. So, then, you know, like the next, so Tom plays like another creature or something. The next turn, his opponent does something kind of unexpected. Uh, The game keeps progressing. Um, his opponent plays a Soren Grim Nemesis. Oh, wow. Like out of nowhere. And, I, and you know, Patrick and I are having a blast commentating this game and watching Tom's facial reactions because, you know, he has no idea what's going on. And I think that some of that would be lost if all the information was public. So I know a lot of people have talked about hand cams and, um, you know, is, is it good? Is it bad? Magic really needs it. Like, first of all, there's a lot that goes into actually setting those up. Not saying it's impossible because nothing is, but uh, there are some real, um, you know, benefits and, you know, cost-benefit analysis to having that sort of thing. But I think the short answer to your question is, you know, if, if I'm living in a world where anything is possible, I think a, a good place to certainly start is instant replay. Um, and then kind of going from there and seeing, you know, how well does that work? How much do people enjoy this? Because Magic, again, doesn't have that many... Um, it doesn't have that many exciting moments. So, you know, it, you know, does Magic have something that's kind of like a home run mm-hmm. in baseball? Not really. Um, so, how beneficial would instant replay be? What would you want to do instant replay on? Uh, I think that's negotiable, but I could certainly see that being a, a something like a feature that could be beneficial to the coverage to make it more exciting. You know, Cedric, you and Patrick and the team have called so many Magic games. Were there any moments, just like you were talking about with uh, Tom, that really stood out to you as a level up moment for coverage? I mean, we've called a lot of really, really, really good games, a lot of really good matches. I, I, I'm not sure if there's a, a level up moment so much, uh, as you put it, but, you know, are there moments that I remember in matches that we have covered? Uh, absolutely. Uh, it's funny because a lot of them, oddly enough, revolve around Tom. <laughs> I can think of, I can think of, you know, three moments on the top of my head where it's Tom related that he's so awesome. For, you know, there was a moment at Grand Prix, New Jersey a couple of years ago where he was playing Infect in Legacy, of course. And uh, he was playing against an opponent who was playing a blue-red landstill deck. A gentleman's name escaped, is escaping me, unfortunately. Uh, but it's a best of SCG Live moment. And there was a, I was actually covering this match with Matthias Hunt at the time. Uh, it was the quarterfinals of the Grand Prix. And there comes a moment where um, basically it looks like killing, uh, Tom, killing Tom's opponent with Infect is looking pretty unlikely. Mm-hmm. So, Tom starts to shift into Noble Hierarch Beatdowns, and Matthias and I are just like, and his opponent's like at 18 or something, <laughs> and Matthias and I are just like, well, you know, Tom's going to get in like a, you know, a chip point of damage here because he doesn't have like an Moth Nexus or a Glistener Elf or anything. Makes sense, you know, maybe he can, you know, get in, get in with regular damage, ha ha ha. Yeah. And then, you know, his opponent is like kind of flooding out a little bit, um, and Tom is starting to pick up on that some. And so Tom is just like, okay, I guess I'll play another Noble Hierarch, attack you for two, and, you know, starting to will him away a little bit with regular damage, and now Tom is kind of shifted to, all right, Noble Hierarchs and I are going to do this. So, yeah. <laughs> so all of a sudden, you know, now he's become immensing his Noble Hierarchs and casting Vines of the Vastwood and defending them really heavily around burn spells and all this stuff, and, you know, he ends up winning the game by dealing his opponent, I think... I really think it was like 22 points of regular damage. That's incredible. And so, you know, if if I had to say, is there like a best match I've ever covered or a best moment that I've ever covered? And again, a lot of the moments do involve Tom because he's won back-to-back opens, back-to-back invitationals, played both players' championships, lost in the finals of a Grand Prix. I think that most of the moments are Tom Ross related, but that is... That is the the cherry on the Tom Ross Sunday right there. That is too funny. Thanks for sharing that. That is just too funny. Cedric, you have played professionally for so long. You've commentated for so long. You've been really in the higher levels and higher echelons of magic for so long. Cedric, what advice do you have for players that are aspiring to get onto the Pro Tour or to improve their game? Uh, the advice I have for players who are trying to get on the Pro Tour and, or just improve their game or get into competitive magic, uh, the same advice I always tell everyone is to be honest with yourself about what you're trying to accomplish and how difficult it is to accomplish that. The thing that I've always been really good at is just being honest with myself and my results and how I've accomplished the things that I've done. Magic for me, uh, I don't have a lot of what I would say natural ability. 
uh, to be able to read game states or anything like that. Like I, I have to play a lot to be able to be good at magic. I have to play a ton, a ton, a ton of games to be able to be good. Uh, but I'm also really honest with myself about my results. Like if I make a mistake or I screw up or, you know, I built a bad sideboard or my mana base is wrong in a tournament, all that stuff, you have to be able to analyze yourself critically, be honest with yourself uh, to be able to improve. So uh, you can't push things off on stuff like my opponent got so lucky or, you know, I got mana screwed or I got mana flooded. Like that's just part of the game. That's, that's, that's the contract you're signing up for. Uh, when you decide to play Magic in a competitive environment, you have to focus on the things that you can control. And as a result, you have to be self-critical about those things. And I think that if you want to be, you know, someone like a Seth Manfield or an Owen Turtonwald or a Lou Scott Vargas or stuff like that, those guys don't ever complain about luck. They look at what happened in their match and, you know, they are able to analyze that critically about the mistakes that they made or the things that they did right and continue to improve their game. And I think that's the thing that people have to be the best at is you have to be willing to look at your results and look at your process honestly and, you know, be able to improve and say, you know what, this is something that I need to work on or this is something that I just did very poorly this weekend or this round or this turn uh, to be able to improve your play. Yeah, those are some great words, Cedric. Thank you. What advice do you have for new players just starting off in the game? Uh, For new players, this one's actually pretty easy, uh, which is just play as much as you can and surround yourself with people who are better than you Assuming that you want to become really good at magic. Like, if you're just playing magic for funsies, um, then just play as much as you can because magic's a really dynamic game uh, that has a lot of intricacies and it's going to teach you a lot of things, not only about like just magic in general, but also in life. So, I think that's one of the things and one of the reasons I always come back to magic is because it's just a lot of fun and it teaches you a lot of things indirectly. So, I just say, you know, play as much as you can, assuming that you've got a lot of time to play because it's a lot of fun uh, and hopefully you'll enjoy it. Yeah, very cool. And here's a fairly new question I want to ask you, since you are all up in the commentary. What advice do you have for people that want to get into coverage or want to get into commentary? Uh, practice. <laughs> that's that's kind of the big one um, for me. So, uh, the first thing I would say is practice. And that means if you want to you know, go to old matches and uh, do commentary over them, uh, that would be certainly a step in the right direction. Uh, I would say that you need to know the players know the cards, uh, know the formats. Like, there's a lot that goes into being good at magic coverage that people don't really understand and don't really see behind the scenes. I know a lot of people like to either critique some people or praise some people, but um, I don't think a lot of people understand just how difficult it is to do coverage mm-hmm. and how much how much preparation kind of goes into it. For for me. Uh, I'm in like this kind of interesting situation in that I still do a lot of preparation for coverage, but I don't have to do as much anymore because I have a really weird memory (laughs) where I just remember all of the cards. So, you know, if I read a card once, I basically know what it does for the rest of my life. (laughs) If I see the picture of a card, I know what it does. Basically, Uh I I know I can put the picture immediately to the card. You know, for the most part, I'm not 100%, obviously, but, you know, not everyone's going to have that skill slash talent. So... You have to put a lot of work in to be good at this sort of thing. And that means that you have to practice. You have to put the hours in because this is not something uh, for the most part where people can just step in and be able to do this. It's really tough. Do aspiring, uh, I guess, magic commentators, do they, is there a way for them to apply or they just have to get on stream and make a name for themselves? I would say, yeah, it's kind of the latter, honestly. You have to kind of get on stream and make a name for yourself uh, more than anything. Uh, I wouldn't say there, I don't want to say there isn't an application process, but there isn't anything formal. So, you know, there's not, I couldn't, I couldn't be like, you know, you just go to college for this, then you do that, then you go to this internship program, and then, hey, you're in the booth. Like, <laughs> that's, that's not really how it works. Um, so, I think that, you know, the easiest thing that I think you have to do outside of just do a lot of practicing and, you know, build up an audience that, that can allow people to know that this is something that you're doing. Um, and then also just kind of make a name for yourself in magic. I mean, there's no real easy path to getting into coverage. Um, my path wasn't easy at all. I got rather fortunate. So, that's the best I can honestly tell you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for the tip, Cedric. And Cedric, what's kind of upcoming for you? What's new? Or are you working on anything? Uh, I'm always working on something because I work about 18 hours a day. So, uh, <laughs> I'm always working on something. Between, between the podcast that I do, um, between the coverage that I do, the work that I'm doing for Star City, uh, the work that I'm doing for a new daily fantasy sports strategy website called fanvice.com, uh, and some of the other things that I unfortunately cannot mention that I'm working on, um, I'm always working on something. So, um, you know, if you guys want to listen to the podcast, I do said talks. 
Uh, that's awesome. If you guys want to watch the coverage I do over at SCG Live, that's awesome. Um, if you guys want to read the articles that are published on Star City Games, both Premium and Select, that's awesome. Uh, if you care about Daily Fantasy Sports and you want to go over to fanvice.com, obviously that's great. I'm always kind of involved in something because working is just the thing that I enjoy doing more than anything. Yeah, very cool. All right, Cedric, I've got some rapid fire questions for you. Are you ready? I'm going to be as ready as I can be. Okay, here we go. Rapid fire question number one. Cedric, of the five colors of magic, white, blue, black, red, and green, what's your favorite color and why? Uh, I would say that white is my favorite color. Uh, The reason for that is one, Kithkin, and two, Armageddon is one of my favorite cards of all time. So there it is. Okay, very, very cool. And uh, what would you combo it with? Is there like a color pair or a wedge pair or anything like that? No, just a lot of planes. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, okay. don't need anything else. Just a lot of planes. Okay, sweet, sweet. All right. Cedric, question number two. If you could change something about Magic the Gathering, what would it be? Hmm, if I could change something about Magic the Gathering, I think I would change the modern ban list. Okay. <laughs> All right. What would you change about that? Uh, I would just open it up, make it no ban list. Oh, Okay. Yeah, just complete chaos. Oh, okay. Yeah. I like that. I like that. Yeah, there's been uh, definitely some stores up here in the Seattle area, like Mox Boarding House and Card Kingdom. They've been doing a lot of like modern no band lists and like streaming those kinds of things. And it's it's really crazy. People say it's kind of like Legacy 1.5. It's like not as powerful as Legacy, but still pretty powerful. Yeah, no modern band list tournaments are pretty crazy. I think they're a lot of fun, actually. I think it's a fun thought experiment to see what we could do if everything were legal. I'm not necessarily saying it's a good format, but <laughs> it's just a it's just a thing I want to have happen. <laughs> Maybe there should be like a week that like Watsy's like, fine, just for two weeks everything is legal. And then after that we're banning it up again. Totally on board with that. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. All right. Cedric, question number three. If you could give something to every magic player, what would it be? Okay, if I could give something to every magic player, my answer would be I would teach them all how to draft the way I learned how to draft. Oh, and how did you learn how to draft? Uh, so, when I was 16 or 17, um, there was a store about 30 minutes from my house called Compendium in Rocky River, Ohio. Uh, and that is where all the really, really good players played in the area. Uh, and one of my best friends in Ohio is named Joe Gagliardi. He's actually my podcast partner on my wrestling podcast. Um, he saw that I was really struggling with limited, uh, and you know, this was a really competitive store. So some of the guys were jerks and I was young. So that sort of thing just happens. <laughs> uh, and, uh, he was just like, and I, you know, I was losing a draft. I was basically othering every draft and I, my deck was always really bad. And he was like, okay, you're going to sit out of the draft this time and you're going to watch me draft. And I'm going to explain every pick that I make. And I'm going to explain why I'm making that pick, what my thought process for what my thought process is for every single pick. Uh, what cards I think are going to get taken in what order, what cards I think are going to come back, uh, the full breakdown. And that is actually how I learned how to get good at limited, uh, because someone actually sat me down and showed me exactly how limited works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I actually think that I'm a much better limited magic player than I am a constructed magic player, even though a lot of my success has come in constructed. Uh, but both my limited, both my Grand Prix top eights are limited. And I think they're, that's a pretty big reason why is because I was taught how to play limited uh, from the ground up by a very, very good limited player in Ohio. Wow, wow. What uh, specific tips were those? Like how how to go about drafting like a mana curve, how to read a table, um, you know, what colors were good in the set and why, what cards were good in the set and why. This was during Onslaught, uh, which was a really complicated set because of the morph mechanic. Um, you know, what cards he thought were going to come back around, which cards are early picks, which cards are middle picks, you know, signaling. All that stuff. Um, he taught me basically everything that you could teach someone about how to draft. Um, and every time I would go in the shop for about two weeks, he would sit down with me and I'd get to watch him draft and he'd teach me things. And then uh, I got better real fast because of that. Do you think that some of those tactics that he taught you still carry through in all of the subsequent sets that have been released? Absolutely. Um, everything that he basically taught me in drafting, which was kind of the basics of draft or you know how you're supposed to approach booster draft, uh, they certainly hold true in, in regards to signaling at a table, um, mana curves, how to draft an aggressive deck, how to draft a, you know, kind of a control deck, uh, how to draft sideboard cards that actually matter because sideboarding is you know, two-thirds of the games that you actually play. I think a lot of people forget that in limited as opposed to constructed. Like he, all, all those things still ring true. Wow, that is so cool. Cedric, question number four. What do you see in the future of Magic the Gathering? 
I see some really cool sets on the horizon. I can say that, um, you know, Kaladesh looks like it's going to be pretty cool from a flavor perspective. I'm hoping the cards live up to the flavor that's on the way. Um, they also announced some really cool things for the next set that is going to be coming out, like next base set slash block that's going to be coming out. Uh, it's based around Nicol Bolas. So I think that, you know, the game of Magic in regards to like the actual playing of the game and the cards is in a really good spot. Uh, and I'm really excited about that sort of thing. Um, we'll see how things go in, in regards to the coverage aspect and the production side of Magic. But the game of Magic, uh, I have no concerns there. Okay. All right. And last, Cedric, do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? Uh, I don't really think so. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of people who know who I am um, have been really supportive of the things that I've done between uh, my coverage, my podcast, my articles, uh, the things I've done with SCG uh, and the endeavors that I've kind of got myself into. So I'm very appreciative of that. Um, so I thank everyone for um, kind of listening to me on this particular podcast, and other podcasts that I've done as well as my own. Um, and that's really it. No, no asks of anybody or of anything. Um, if you guys like what I do, uh, keep supporting it. And if not, that's totally cool too. Uh, but I appreciate everyone that supported me throughout the past uh, handful of years. That's really cool, man. Well, Cedric, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you for just everything that you've done for the Magic community. You know, your love for the game, your passion, also your dedication and also your hard work ethic. You put so much of your time, effort and energy into the community. And I really want to thank you for that because your articles have made such a huge difference on my life. I've read them. I know that countless other people have read those articles and have leveled up and have had event success and tournament success with it. Um, your coverage is awesome. And you wear so many different hats for SEG. So really, you're, you're doing so much to really spread the joy and also improve the game and also improve the industry for everyone in it. So really, thank you so much for everything you do, Cedric. Well, I appreciate it very much. I'm glad that you're able to enjoy the work that I put forward. I certainly enjoy doing it. Like I said, um, working is basically my favorite thing to do. So uh, it's not too much trouble on my end. I'm actually going to do a little bit of work bef- uh, after this podcast before I fall asleep. <laughs> oh, wow. And, uh, and then get ready for SCG Richmond this weekend. So uh, it's not a problem at all. Trust me. Oh, my goodness. And we will have links in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org for said talks and also your other uh, website for fantasy sports is at fanvice.com. That is correct. Yes. And we're going to have all of that on the show notes as well as where to hang out with Cedric on the interwebs, right? They, people can give you a digital high five and shout out to you on Twitter and things like that. Yeah, I'm always around Twitter, Facebook, all that stuff. I'm not a hard guy to find, I promise. Awesome. Well, Cedric, thank you so much for being here with us today on Kitchen Table Magic. No problemo. Thanks for having me. I do appreciate it, Sam. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Cedric Phillips. I'm glad he shared his thoughts on magic broadcasting and the future of magic content. His position as media manager for Star City Games means that he's a pillar of this community when it comes to creating content that helps grow the player base. Throughout Season 2, you'll hear me talk to more guests that were there since the beginning and talk about what they see in the future of Magic. Go say hi to Cedric on Twitter, at Cedric A. Phillips. Links to Cedric Podcasts, Ced Talks, and his show on fanvice.com will be in the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Special thanks to Jerry Thompson for putting in a good word with Cedric at GP Portland last year. Also, if you're a new listener to the show, go back and listen to my interview with Jerry Thompson in Season 1, Episode 10, where he shares a funny story playing magic with Cedric. So, listeners, how's Season 2 going so far? Let me know what you think. Email me, sam at kitchentablemagic.org. I'm also on Facebook, Kitchen Table Magic Podcast, and on Twitter, at KTM Podcast, and I'm always here with a response. If you enjoy the show, consider supporting it on Patreon. For just a few bucks a month, you get to show your support. With the money, I'm going to make some cool swag for everyone. And with all the dank memes I Photoshop every day, you can bet that the swag I'm going to make will be high quality. Thank you so much for listening to the show. Coming up in the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic... So apparently, I have a reputation for being the person who created Friday Night Magic. That's a bit of an overstatement, but basically, in the early days of Wizards of the Coast, and we're talking about that first five years, uh, what ended up happening was that we were looking as a team to, for something to replace the old, very chaotic arena program. And we wanted something that was consistent, had good branding, that people would understand. And the credit really has to go to my boss at the time, Jeff Donay, who really originated the idea of something like a Friday Night Magic. 
uh, from there, I just happened to be in the right place at the right time to have the job of basically making sure that it was gestated properly, that it matured, and then got delivered into the world. One could say that Jeff Danae is the father of Friday Night Magic, and I'm the mother. And so along the way, there were obviously many details that we had to deal with. Uh, it was quite a complex setup because developing any global program is not an easy task. I'm talking with the mysterious James Lee. As you heard in the preview clip, James worked tirelessly to turn Friday Night Magic into a reality. Millions of players worldwide participate in FNM, and it's the cornerstone of the Magic player's experience. Join me for a very special interview with James Lee, all on the next episode of Kitchen Table Magic.